Okay, we're going to get started with the afternoon portion of our presentations. I think a lot of people are still finishing up lunch, so they'll be trickling in throughout the presentation. Thank you for your patience with that. So we're about to start our Guardianships and Conservatorships 101. We're very excited to have two very experienced attorneys to talk to you about this subject. Sue O'Brien, formerly a patent attorney, she's a private mediator and attorney in Aspen who's provided services to thousands of individuals requiring legal assistance with situations involving families, children, seniors, housing, victims of crime and domestic violence, financial hardship and mental illness. She maintains a private practice, OSC Law and Mediation in LLC in Aspen, and is of counsel for Alpine Legal Services, assisting with litigation matters for crime victims, particularly seniors in need of guardianships and conservatorships to protect them from fraud and abuse. Kate Johnson is an assistant county attorney in the Garfield County Attorney's Office, where she primarily serves as legal counsel for the Department of Human Services. She received her undergraduate degree from the University of Iowa and her JD degree from Crichton University in Omaha, Nebraska. She also served as a deputy district attorney with the Weld County Colorado District Attorney's Office from 2007 to 2010. So if you'll Join me in welcoming Sue and Kate, who are going to be presenting on Guardianships and Conservatorships 101. Thank you, everybody. Um, so the purpose of my presentation today is just to provide a very brief overship of what a guardianship is and how you can go about seeking a guardianship if you feel somebody is in need of a guardian. Um, so what is a guardian? A guardian is a person appointed by the court to make decisions on behalf of another person. And we often refer to this other person as either the respondent or the ward. So when you're going through these court proceedings, the court will often refer to the person who we're seeking guardianship of as the respondent or the ward. Um, except as otherwise limited by the court, a guardian shall make decisions regarding the ward's support, care, education, health, and just general welfare. There, a guardian can be appointed in two situations. So for minors who really don't have the ability to make decisions for themselves, the court can appoint a guardian. And then again, for incapacitated persons. Generally, um, an incapacitated person is when we see somebody who is maybe suffering from a dementia or Alzheimer's or some sort of, or is deteriorated to such a level that they really just cannot accept receive information, make informed decisions, and so we're asking the court to appoint somebody to do that on their behalf. So what is an incapacitated person? I'm really gonna focus on the incapacitated person and not the children, because I think that's the focus of this presentation. Uh, and the rules are different for each, so just be aware of that. So to seek guardianship over another person, you have to be at least the age of 21 years and anybody who is interested in the welfare of the respondent of the ward can ask the court to appoint a guardian. Prior to appointing a guardian, so part of this process is the court has to find that the person is in fact incapacitated. So the focus of a court proceeding on the onset is to say, is this person incapacitated such to a level that somebody needs to be appointed to make decisions on their behalf? And the law has defined an incapacitated person to mean an individual other than a minor who is unable to effectively receive or evaluate information or both or make or communicate decisions to such an extent that the individual lacks the ability to satisfy essential requirements for physical health, safety, or self-care, 
even with appropriate and reasonable available technological assistance. So there are certain circumstances where technological assistance can be provided that would assist in communication. If that's the case, generally a, a guardianship won't be authorized. But if they just don't have the ability to really make decisions and receive information regarding their health, safety, or welfare, it is an appropriate circumstance to appoint a guardian. Kate, I'm gonna interrupt, I'm so sorry. I'm over yeah. here, over yeah. here. If you can be sure to keep your mouth real close to the uh, microphone. Uh, we're having a little bit of, a trou of trouble hearing back here. Just talk louder. Louder. <laughs> I will try and talk louder. <laughs> Thank you. The first step in a guardianship process is you do have to file a petition with the court. There is a petition online. I'll provide you with a website at the end of my presentation and it is a fillable form. You can also go into any clerk's office and they can give you the form if you wanna do it via writing. Anyone again over the age of 21 may file the petition with the court. You are required to identify certain people such as spouses, adult children, parents, and the persons responsible for the ward or the respondent's care. You do have to provide the court a brief description of the nature and extent of the ward's incapacity and then it's gonna ask, and the court's gonna always ask, what are you asking for the power to do? So some guardianships may be very limited in what they allow. Maybe it's only to make medical decisions. And some guardianships may be unlimited, and the court by law has the ability to give you basically all the powers that the law allows. Um, you do have to identify any property owned by the ward. The court's gonna be interested to hear that. And as I said, all these forms are found online, and there is the website. It's um, the Colorado State Judicial website has all the forms you would need to petition the court for a guardianship. When you file a petition, or when somebody files a petition with the court, the court's first step will be to set a hearing, and you're gonna be required to serve a copy of your petition upon the person who you're seeking guardianship over, and all any other interested parties. So the person's giving care to the respondent, the spouse of the respondent, the adult children of the respondent. Generally, you're gonna be required to, have to give them notice of these proceedings. The court will also, in all sort of adult guardianship proceedings, appoint a court visitor, and this is usually a lawyer, and that lawyer is gonna have the job to kind of investigate the situation. The visitor will talk to all involved, so the visitor will go visit with the respondent, the visitor will talk to the person who you, either if it's yourself saying, I wanna be the guardian, or I want a family member to be the guardian, the visitor will talk to all those involved. The visitor will explain the substance of the petition to the respondent, interview the petitioner, and any proposed guardians. And then the, the visitor prepares a report with some recommendations and that gets submitted to the court for review. In a guardianship proceeding, the court can order a professional evaluation or you can ask the court to order a professional evaluation. I will say that in the cases, so I represent the Department of Human Services for Garfield County and there are very, very limited circumstances where the Department of Human Services may seek a guardianship over a person if we feel it's absolutely necessary for their welfare. And we do always seek a, an opinion from their physician 
as to whether or not they are incapacitated. And a physician is trained, or at least most physicians that, um, that often their practice deals with seniors, they are trained to evaluate the senior to say, does this person have capacity? And there's a few tests. The Department of Human Services adult protection caseworkers are also trained on that. So they can provide some professional evaluation if your county allows that. Um, as I said, even the respondent can say, I don't think I'm incapacitated. I want, you, I want to go see a professional to, to provide an opinion. They have the right to do that. And they're going to evaluate basically the nature, type, and extent of the cognitive and functional limitations of the respondent, the mental and physical condition, and if appropriate, educational potential, adaptive behavior, and social skills. And they will generally provide a prognosis for improvement and recommendations for treatment. As I said, we often seek professional evaluations when the Department of Human Services is seeking a guardianship. And physicians are capable of providing some valuable opinions in this area. So who's your guardian, right? Uh, just because you're the petitioner doesn't mean you necessarily will be named the guardian. The court actually has discretion to pick who the guardian's going to be. So it could be a person named, named as a guardian by the respondent. Um, it could be the petitioner. It could be, an, and I will say this, it's important to note that as the respondent, while you're planning, um, you can nominate somebody. If you think this is going to be something in the future that needs to be addressed, you can actually, by writing, nominate in your like living will documents and those kinds of things, you could address who you feel is the best person to be appointed guardian if you do become incapacitated. And I think that's an important point to take away. Uh, if not, the court does have a list. There's a statute, 15-14-310, and it kind of provides a list and priority of who the court is going to consider. Parents and adult children will be given some preference in this situation. So there, it is also important to know who cannot be a guardian. An owner, operator, employee of a long-term care provider, unless they're related to the respondent by blood, marriage, or adoption. So we don't, the court and the law does not really favor situations where somebody in a position where they could maybe have some financial interest be also have all of this other power with respect to a person. So the law has actually limited who cannot be, who can be a guardian. I would also note that the same professional may not serve as guardian and conservator or conservator and direct service provider. And they generally, if you have both a guardian conservator, they may not employ the same person to care and manage and provide um, provider and provide direct services for the ward unless the person is a family caregiver. So there is some limitation on how these relationships work for a very good reason. I would note that if you're a family member, you can be both. So just be clear that, you know, I think the law favors family members in these positions, and it does allow for that and favor that situation. But for instance, if the Department of Human Services is appointed the guardian, we cannot also be the conservator. The financial piece and decision-making piece remain separate. We will get to conservator. That's the second part of this presentation, and Ms. O'Brien will address what a conservator is and, and what that means. Um, so, so how does a guardian get appointed? There's a court hearing. 
and the court will find if the person is incapacitated and the court will find what powers the guardian should be granted and it will enter orders granting limited or unlimited powers to the guardian. Those powers include the ability to apply for and receive assistance, social security benefits, et cetera, take custody of the ward and establish the ward's place of dwelling. The law does not allow a guardian to move a ward out of state without the court's approval. Uh, the, the guardian can commence a conservatorship proceeding if the court gives them power to do so. It could delegate certain responsibilities for decisions affecting the ward's well-being and consent and give the guardian consent to adopt to the adoption or marriage of the ward. So those are pretty much the law, what the law says the powers can be. And you could get all of these as a guardian or only some of these. Emergency guardianships. So if you have a situation where because the general process once you file a petition can take quite some time it can take a couple months for that hearing to actually happen if you feel that compliance with the general procedures would result in substantial harm to the respondent's health safety or welfare and no other person appears to have authority and willingness to act like they don't have a power of attorney nobody has a power of attorney for medical decisions let's say but somebody needs to make these decisions the court may appoint an emergency guardian for 60 days. You still have to file the petition, but the order granting the guardianship can be almost immediate if you have emergency circumstances. It still requires the court to hold a hearing. Usually they set that within a few days, and you do sometimes have to provide notice to all those people we talked about, the respondent, the family but the court can proceed to a hearing even if you haven't had a chance to give notice to everybody who's involved. Almost in all guardianship cases that I've been involved with, the court will appoint a lawyer to represent the ward upon the filing of a petition. We want the ward to have legal representation. And so in an emergency guardianship, the court must appoint a lawyer to represent the ward immediately. The court will have, the court can appoint emergency guardian without notice to the respondent only if the court finds from testimony that the respondent will be substantially harmed if the appointment is delayed. And the court has the power to remove an emergency guardianship or modify the powers it's granted the guardian at any point in time during an emergency guardianship. So what happens after you have an, after your appointed guardian or after a guardian is appointed that guardian does have certain duties under the law so it's not just you go to court you get the authority to make decisions you actually have obligations that come with this you have to file a report within 60 days of the appointment and then every year thereafter so there does there is an annual reporting requirement and the court has a person who will track you down if you don't file it um, and they are pretty strict with those guidelines. The report, again, there's a form online, so you just pull the form up, you fill it out. Um, but mostly the court is just looking for the information about the ward's condition, their personal care, their living situation, medical care, those types of things. And just remember, I mean, this is the most important thing. Guardians are supposed to act in the ward's best interests. So that should be your primary guiding light 
if you're appointed guardian in a case or if you have a guardian. Um, and they should, a guardian should maintain a personal relationship with the ward, visit the ward, see what their living situation is like. I know if the department is appointed a guardian, we make it um, a, a rule to go see our wards at least once a month and talk to their care providers to see how everything is going. Um, so just some practical considerations to take away. <laughs> just because you are appointed a guardian doesn't mean the ward's always going to do what you want them to do. Uh, we had a situation where we took guardianship of an individual who did not want to be placed where we had placed him, and he ran away almost every day. And he would get picked up by truck drivers, and there was nothing we could do. You can't lock up a ward just because you don't like their behaviors. You can't always stop them maybe from drinking or from not taking their medicine. You, you certainly have the power to talk to their medical providers and encourage this, but it doesn't mean you get to force them to do things they don't want to do. Um, it doesn't always solve all of the safety concerns. So it's not this magical wand that just fixes everything. The court will give priority to persons appointed, nominated by the respondent. Um, you can't move out of state again without, a court, without court approval. You cannot, by law, in initiate mental health commitments or involuntary substance abuse treatment without seeking those tools through the proper legal roads. There, there are statutes that govern how you do those things, and you have to follow those. It only, once you're appointed guardianship, it's kind of like a marriage. You're in it. Um, you can resign and you can ask to be relieved of your duties, but only until the court does that can you say, I'm no longer involved here. You're in it until the court basically dissolves that relationship. And it does terminate automatically, obviously, upon the death, so you won't have any powers once the person, the ward dies. Like, you won't have any say in sort of unless authorized by will or otherwise, you won't have any say after the death of the ward. And again, it's generally, if you're a family member, you can be both a, war, a guardian and a conservator, but um, and if you're not a family member, it's, om it's kind of in your best interest to seek somebody else to be a conservator. A conservator is somebody who's in charge of all the financial affairs, and it really just keeps it cleaner um, from a legal perspective. So here's my contact information. Feel free to email me. I didn't put my phone number on there. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, oh, I did. Uh, I did put the Adult Protective Services phone number for Garfield County on here. That's an important phone number to have. We do have an adult protection unit, and if you feel that a, a senior, or any adult for that matter, is in an unsafe situation, you can call, and they will do an investigation, and they'll work with law enforcement to see if there's anything the state can do or we can do. And then the forms, again, are online, so thank you. I'm going to let Ms. O'Brien talk about conservatorships, and then we'll answer questions afterwards. While we're getting it, can you hear me? While we're getting it set up, Kate, how many emergency guardianships have you done versus regular? Maybe two, so not many. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, really the only time I've ever seen it, sorry, the only time I've ever really pursued emergency guardianship is in medical emergency situations where somebody, something happened, the person's in the emergency room or in the hospital and we need somebody to make decisions. And, it's, and that's when I see it most commonly.
to say. I, yeah. I've only done a few emergencies, um, but that, but when you need them, you need them. They're just a lot more, oh, somebody's got a, I think we're gonna do questions after. Okay, sure. So, okay. Okay, so maybe this will answer your question. Um, okay, I, I think his question is, in, in generalities, you're asking that, you know, okay, specifically, but actually I had something like that happen. Sure. Sure, I'm gonna answer that because I actually had a case like that. So I believe what you're asking is, and, and I, I'm not very familiar with the Las Vegas situation, but uh, I believe your question is, let's say that somebody, somebody's relative says they're incapacitated or they're incompetent and goes and to, to court and tries to prove that they're incompetent and, you know, I've had a, at least one case where that, that happened. And, right, but this person came to me and I was able to undo the conservatorship and the guardianship because it had done, not been done. It, it, it was done with some malicious intent. Can I, can yeah, I please. speak to that too? Yeah. So in Colorado, I don't know what Nevada's law is, but if somebody tries to seek guardianship, for instance, over me, I would be entitled to a lawyer. And that lawyer, would be represent me, not anybody else. I also have the authority to ask the court and the court would order it for a separate evaluation that would go into the decision of to, as to whether or not a guardianship is appropriate. So there are some safeguards built into the law. It's not to say it never could happen. I mean, clearly it happens, but there are some safeguards built into the law that if somebody were to seek guardianship over you, you could ask for an independent evaluation, probably recommend who you would want that to be, and you would also have the right to have your own lawyer, and the visitor that gets appointed is an independent person who would get to make their own recommendations. Not to say that in anything there's not the ability for corruption and, and sort of malfeasance of, the, of you know, resources, but um, there are some provisions built into the law that would hopefully prevent a similar situation to what you're talking about, if that makes sense. Yes, and you can always, as, as Kate just said, if all else fails, you can, and, and it does happen. I had a situation where somebody sort of regained competency, if you will, and she retained an attorney and was able to overturn her conservatorship and guardianship. Um, so there's safeguards in the system. Hopefully that doesn't, not to say it hasn't happened or won't happen, but there's a lot of safeguards built in there. All right, so conservatorship. Um, so the de definition of a conservatorship is a person at least 21 years of age who has been appointed by a court to manage the estate as opposed to a guardianship where it's to really handle the, the health care and the body, as we say, the financial affairs of an incapacitated person or a minor under the age of 18. 
And as, as Kate just explained in a guardianship, uh, it's sort of the same um, requirements. And, um, oh, am I, sorry. <laughs> and very often it's the same person if it's a family member. Uh, sometimes family members wanna split the responsibilities. Maybe a brother will be the conservator to his sister and uh, another sibling will be the, the guardian and they'll split the responsibilities because it's, it's a lot of work. So moving on. Um, again, just like Kate, I don't think we're gonna uh, talk too much about the child and minor under 18 years old. I will just say that in, this, in instances where parents are deceased and the child has no family, parents are killed together in a car crash, this is when this um, kicks in. But we're gonna focus more on um, adult conservatorships. So one thing I wanna say is where we see this in this community is um, let's say somebody has a stroke or is sh starting to show signs of early onset Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, and they're just no longer able to handle their finances. Uh, that's really sort of the model that we see. Um, we've had cases where someone needs a guardian and they don't need a conservator or vice versa. Uh, maybe they, they have enough capacity to sort of live at home, but, but finances are becoming overwhelming for them, in which case maybe a family member will step in and petition to be the conservator. Um, conversely, we've had situations where um, you know, they're not really yet to the point where, you know, they need a conservator because their finances are sort of automatic. They do a lot of auto pay, but they really need somebody to help them with their, their medical condition is declining. So, but typically if a person is truly incapacitated, they need a guardian and a conservator. Um, so with an adult, the respondent must be, and I'll, by the way, a lot of this is gonna be redundant from what Kate said. Um, because the statutes are fairly similar, very similar. But the respondent must be a resident in the county in which you are filing the petition. Now, if the respondent, now what we mean by respondent is that's the, per, that's the ward, that's the person that needs the protection. Or if the respondent does not reside in the state, must own property in the county in which you are filing. Typically, what we see is people that are living in the valley. Uh, the person to be protected um, or a person interested in the welfare of the person to be protected may file a case. Um, if you are going to be the conservator, there are some things you have to do before you file the case in court. And as Kate explained, it's a series of documents. Um, but you're going to need a background check with the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, a credit report, and your license. The judge is gonna need to see all that to make sure that, especially if you're a conservator, that you don't have a record that, you know, you're not in this to, to steal someone's money. Um, and again, statutorily, the court may appoint a conservator for an adult if it is determined that the, the respondent, which is the ward, which is the person who needs the protection, is unable to manage his or her property due to some type of incapacity. Again, stroke, early onset Alzheimer's, um, dementia, uh, memory, severe memory issues. The petitioner, which is the person who is going to be the conservator, must also show that the 
ward or the person to be protected, also called the respondent, has assets which will be wasted without proper management. Now I wanna talk about this. Um, what we see, um, especially with some of our seniors that are living alone, is that you know maybe they own a house, maybe they have retirement coming in, they have social security, um, and they're, they get taken advantage of. There's a lot of scams out there. The police are, in this valley, are really watching for this type of behavior. Uh, it's, it's a senior gets a phone call that says, hey, you wanna make money quickly, send us a check for $200, this kind of thing. So we're really on the radar for this type of thing, this, this elder abuse. And so what we see is people that are living alone, starting to have some dementia, are taken advantage of. And um, that's when you know family members start to get nervous and feel that this person is a target of scams. They, they can't really, they don't have that reasoning to understand that this isn't a legitimate way to make money. So um, family members will step in there. And again, the controlling statutes for the legal part of this is 1514-401 through 433. Uh, and, and practically, what this looks like and many times with my clients, it's the first time they've ever been to court. And you know, their, their sister has become, has dementia or had a stroke. All the family members are coming in. They've never been to court before. But it's the judge is in there. It's a courtroom. It's, it's a regular hearing. We call it a hearing. And we put the various family members on the stand. And they testify that, you know, that their family member has, is showing signs of dementia and has is losing money or doesn't know how to handle their finances or is spending um, large amounts of money that they don't have and so forth. And um, so that's how that looks. Oh, bear with me here. Oh, I have the wrong button. That's better. Okay, so what are the steps? Again, you prepare all the necessary documents uh, with the help of a lawyer, either retain a lawyer or have a lawyer assist you we have Alpine Legal Services in the community for, for families that have, really don't have the, the funds, truly don't have the funds to hire a lawyer to help with this process. Um, you file all the forms, there is a filing fee. It was 164, those fees go up quite often. So at the time I did this, it was 164. Um, all, all forms, step three, all forms must be copied and sent to all interested parties. Now what this means, is if you're a family with seven siblings and you're concerned about one of your brothers, all the other siblings and all the parents and everybody related to that person must be notified that this process is going on. You can't hide it from everybody in the family. And then they can choose to be part of it or not. Or they can say, you know what, our brother Tom is the right guy to be doing this. We're not gonna contest it. So minor, again, we're not gonna focus on that adult all relatives of the incapacitated person, including spouse, adult children, parents, adult relative, nearest of kin if no spouse, um, need to be notified that somebody is bringing a conservatorship action against somebody. And if whereabouts of those people are unknown, you have to do something called serve by publication, and that's pretty involved. I won't go into that right now, but a lawyer could help you with that. Um, for adults only, as um, Kate mentioned, the court shall appoint what we call a court visitor, typically a lawyer. Um, actually, in Pitkin County, we, um, the court is using a psychologist.
who has a, uh, a lot of experience in, in elder law, in elder care. So that person, once you file your paperwork and you say, you know, my uncle or my brother or my sister, I believe they need me to be their conservator or somebody be their conservator, the court will automatically appoint a family court visitor. And that person will go to the house of the person. They will do all the investigation to see if this person is truly incapacitated. Um, and along with that, that's just not the only piece of evidence the judge looks at. The judge also is going to look at neurological reports, tests done by um, psychologists, sometimes adult protective services gets involved and can administer a test. So the judge looks at you know, independent, unbiased uh, evidence to prove an incapacity. Um, okay, the, in step four, the incapacitated person needs to be served. They, they can't just be surprised. They need to be served with all the paperwork and know what's going on. You get your hearing in court. So what happens after? Um, Kate went through this with the guardianship. It's very similar. Um, after it's, it's done, for the rest of the ward's life, the, you as the conservator will have to file yearly documents. The first thing you file is your financial plan and to basically say, look, Your Honor, this is what we're gonna do with his money. This is where, the way it's gonna look. We're gonna create a trust. We're gonna you know, put it in this specific bank. So the judge will, will need to know what you're planning on doing with the ward's money. And then every year subsequent, you file an annual conservator's report so the court knows what's going on. Now. What, what typically happens is, let's say the ward is able to live at home and with a caregiver, and then their condition continues to decline, and then the conservator, usually a family member, decides it's time to put them in a residential facility, you know, some sort of nursing home, memory care unit, uh, assisted living, then the court needs to know about that, and they need to know literally every dime you're spending to do this. So they know that you are using the ward's money for the benefit of the ward and for no one else. So what does a conservator actually do? Again, the guardian is more, is, is focused on the body and health of the ward. A conservator will manage finances, pay bills, bank accounts, uh, social security payments, um, para payments, retirement payments, overall financial guidance, and again, must um, submit to the court yearly with what they're doing. Okay, that's um, that's all we have. So Kate, where are you? Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to Please. be clear, um, certainly I encourage, if you're gonna go through either one of these processes, a lawyer is always beneficial because it really can, they can really help walk you through what this means and so um, I, I always encourage that but sometimes if somebody doesn't have the financial sources to do it, you're left to, your, to do it on your own. And I just wanna say that the Colorado Judicial website provides a lot of good instructions and some information about that if that's something you're wanting to do. Um, and you will have to, as Ms. O'Brien said, go through, you have to get fingerprinted, you have to get background checks, regardless of if you're seeking a guardianship or a conservatorship, because the court wants to know you're an appropriate person to be making decisions for this person. Oh, I was just going to add, <laughs> yeah. you just 
made me remember something. Um, if if it's a family member, like Kate said, the court's pretty good about it. You know, they they know you're a family member. You're not in there. But I've had many, many cases where it's not a family member. We can't find the family member. And in that case, the court's going to add pretty strict scrutiny on that person to make sure that, you know, like, why do you want to do this? What's, what's in it for you? So, um, and there are conservators out there that will be paid to, to do that for if, if, if there isn't a family member who is either wants to do it, is capable of doing it, A guardian is also entitled to take a fee, and the court will set that if they are seeking a fee. Um, usually if it's a family member, they're not seeking to be paid to act in that role, but you can be. So, yeah. To add to your comment about if someone has to go it alone and you're accessing court forms to go through a guardianship or conservatorship process, uh, every judicial district in the state of Colorado, all 22 judicial districts have a self-represented litigant coordinator. So this is a person whose job it is to show you the forms, help make you, you know, help you find the forms, and help you, cannot give you legal advice, but can assist you in getting the forms filled out. So you can go to the courthouse, and that person will be able, the, the, there's a person there to help you fill out the forms at the courthouse. So just know that. And of course, the Colorado Judicial Branch is the website that will give you those forms online. So do we have any questions from the audience? I'm gonna walk back. The self-represented litigant coordinator, SRLC, we'll call her Airham Sherlock's sometime. They call them Sherlock's. Ask for the Sherlock. Okay, here we go. Where do fiduciary services come into play with guardianship and conservatorship, especially conservatorship. Do you mean fiduciaries such as your financial advisor or what fiduciary are you thinking of? Offer fiduciary services and it wasn't mentioned in this. So if a bank has assisted in a fiduciary capacity, if there are financial fiduciaries that you have a non uh, so, someone who for, perhaps a financial advisor or someone at your bank is this person involved or consulted in any way in this process uh, okay so let me see how I can answer that um, your question is if you already have uh, maybe a, a private equity advisor or a bank somebody that at the bank that's managing a fiduciary with conservatorship or guardianship. I didn't understand it, that's why I'm asking you. Yeah, like a, a okay, so I'll give you an example. Um, I have a case right now where, yes, the, that's, if I, I think this may help you. Um, the person's brother is the conservator, but the brother is himself elderly and needs a lot of help understanding the financial part of it. So he, yes, he, the family has hired a financial, fidu uh, not really a fiduciary, but uh, a financial manager to help the conservator. Does that answer your question? I mean, you, could, you can always bring in people to, the conservator can always hire 
you know, outside financial advisors to help him. And I think the court, I just want to say, so if the court knew that you had been working with a fiduciary in some sort of role or capacity, they can certainly include that in the orders regarding the conservatorship's responsibility. So I don't know if that helps either, but I think the court would be interested to hear that you do have somebody in this role and they could formulate orders that require participation by a fiduciary that you've been working with. Is it fair to say a conservatorship will never be sought unless there are problems with managing the finances? In other words, if you have a fiduciary, a financial fiduciary, a conservatorship probably won't be sought unless the fiduciary is really not doing their job. Right. That's, and there's another, it might be beyond the scope of this, but it, if, if somebody, if you put a trust together, uh, a trust can also sort of circumvent a conservatorship. So um, a conservatorship is when somebody has money, but, you know, or, you know, has a certain amount of finances coming in, either it could be anything from Social Security to a very large estate. And if it's, in a, if it's already, if you've already created a trust, then you, in many cases, you don't need that conservatorship, if that makes any any sense. So if anybody would like to get into more detail on that, we've got some estates and uh, plan estate planning lawyers here who may be able to explain that a little further. But um, so there are financial implement things you can do in advance of, um, you know, when you still have capacity that will allow you not to need a conservator. So the reason to say. have a conservator is when you just don't have family or well, have such a small family that you may not have a much choice in who. Okay, so that's a very good question. So I'm going to re reiterate that. Is that what if you're alone and you really have no family, you don't have children, your, your parents are gone, you don't have family, and then this let's say a person in that situation um, becomes incapacitated, has a stroke. What happens? Well, um, the process would be that um, if, it, if it came to the attention of Adult Protective Services or Health and Human Services, um, they would go to the appropriate lawyers that would take a look at that and we try to find somebody who could be maybe a, a, a relative, maybe a cousin or somebody like that. But if there's nobody, um, again, possibly beyond the scope of this presentation today, but there is, there is a, a public um, administrator, is the technical term, public conservator, public administrator, um, in those specific cases. I don't know if this is a dumb question, but would this There's be, <laughs> there are no dumb questions if you're asking. If you, would this apply if you have a financial power of attorney? Great, great question. Okay, so how, okay, that's how this works. Um, and this is why we kind of ask you to go to a lawyer because there's a lot of nuances to this. And um, hold on, do we want to talk about Alpine, Alpine Legal Services for those who really do not have the resources to, hire an attorney to help them with this 
um, we have attorneys that can help with this as well. But I'll explain what a financial power of attorney in a conservatorship. Um, when you have capacity, when a person has capacity, that's the time when you want to do your will, your living will, your medical durable power of attorney, your um, financial power of attorney. So what those instruments are is, you know, if I become incapacitated, um, this I want this person to step up and, and help out. The problems with powers of attorney is they have their place, but if a person truly becomes incapacitated, um, and to go back to something Kate said, in your advanced directives documents, you can say, if I ever become incapacitated, I want this person to be my guardian, I want this person to be my conservator. So even with a financial power of attorney, if um, you then become truly incapacitated, a uh, family member hopefully would step up and say, you know, I'm the financial power of attorney or my sister's the financial power of attorney, but this person really needs a conservator because conservatorship can really has a lot more gravitas and, you know, with banks and uh, across the board. So often when you apply for your conservatorship in court, all existing powers of attorneys go away. The conservator then has the power to appoint powers of attorney. For example, if your conservator lives in Nebraska, he may appoint somebody local that lives close to where the ward lives and give that person power of attorney. Does that, does that explain that? Okay, and I'm, I'm happy to answer more questions like that um, once we're done here. A hundred percent. Can you repeat that question? Yeah, okay, the question is, if you have people that are your medical durable powers of attorney and your financial powers of attorney, can you uh, at, request that they be your guardian conservator? Absolutely, and many times they do. Um, you know, I have a case right now where woman said, I want my sister to be my guardian, and um, sister says, you know what, I'm so busy right now, I'm taking care of our elderly parents, I'd rather my brother do it. But, you know, so that the, if it, the person you ask to be your conservator, if it comes to a point where they say, I, I can't, they have the power to, you know, they have the ability to say, I'm, they wanted me to be the conservator, but I think this person would be better. And I want everybody to know that when we have these hearings, um, and Kate will back me up on this, we have the, for the most part, the incapacitated, potential incapacitated person ward is in the courtroom. The judge talks to them. The judge wants to hear from them. Um, they're very much a part of it. Uh, the goal is to include them in all guardianship and conservatorship decisions as much as possible. Um, so they are, they're not shut out of this process at all. They're very much a part of it. And again, it's for their best interests and the, we sort of look at the totality of circumstances and what is in their best interest to keep them safe and their assets safe. Can you think of an example of something a conservator has a power to do that a financial power of attorney agent cannot do? Okay, let me think about this. Uh, and while she's oh, yes, about yes, yes, okay. 
So uh, a financial power of attorney um, is somebody that can, you know, write checks for you in your bank account. Maybe they're, hopefully they're on your bank account. They can, um, you know, talk to Social Security on your behalf. They can talk to your pension company on, on your behalf. But they're not going to be able to make a trust, create a trust, or sell your real estate. Well, they actually, if limited power... <laughs> Limited powers of turn. Yeah. So a conservator, a conservatorship is is more like like Sue said. It's as if that person is you, whereas a, a power of attorney is more like you. Can you talk in the microphone? Sorry. Yeah. A, a conservatorship is more like the conservator is you, so they're not really going to question a lot of, you know, what what the conservator is doing. Like a bank isn't, whereas a power of attorney. Is more like you've delegated to your power of attorney certain powers, and so it, it's very much limited to the to four corners of that power of attorney. And I think it's just maybe a little bit. I, I don't think there's there's uses for both of them, but the conservator's reach is a little broader. Is how I would describe it. Um, but it is like that person is now you, not your power of attorney, which is a little bit different. And I just wanted to add one thing. Um, a guardianship can have some power over finances. So in cases where there really isn't an estate, the, maybe the only source of income is a Social Security check that comes once a month, a lot of times the guardian can be given control of that for purposes of paying for your placement. So like, for instance, if you're to such a, you've deteriorated such a, a ward has deteriorated to such a level that they now require to be placed in a home for their own safety and well-being. The guardian can become the rep representative payee for Social Security to pay that bill. They still have to report to the court every year about what money they're taking in and where it's going. Um, but for very small amounts of money, if you don't have assets, if you don't have trusts, if you don't have investments, the guardian can have some financial responsibility over small amounts of money, if it makes sense. Um, Social Security is really what I see. I don't see really anything else. Yeah. And a lot of times what we see is people have done estate planning and their funds are tied up in a trust or in some sort of family business or, you know, they, they don't really have them in their name, but they're just receiving the Social Security benefits. So a lot of times we'll deal with that strictly within a guardianship and there's no need for a conservatorship if it's very small amounts of money. Where I see a conservatorship becomes really important is there is no family. And now this person is incapacitated, but they don't wanna leave their home, even though every medical professional is telling them you shouldn't be in your home. Um, no family is around to make and help with those decisions but they have assets, they have a home, they have investments, um, and the guardian really can't deal with the selling. The guardian can do a one-time, I believe, transaction and be done, but it doesn't really have the same ability to, to really manage money and manage assets. So it, a lot's gonna depend on your financial circumstance if a conservatorship is appropriate, or maybe it's through a trust, or maybe it's through some other financial arrangement, it's always gonna be fact dependent on what your situation is. This was probably covered. The conservatorship also terminates upon death of the ward? 
Yes, it does. Okay, they're not automatically going to become the um, uh, personal representative of of the of the state. No, no, hopefully not. No. Um, uh, yeah, it automatically terminates. However, you do have to f still file termination paperwork in court and say, "I no longer this co conservatorship no longer needs to be in effect because the ward is now deceased." Any questions? Oh, we right there. <laughs> Getting our exercise. Do all these things? automatically go to next of kin even if you don't want you don't not like or your next of kin are well okay not so what decent people well okay so what i'm gonna do do we have uh wills and estates attorney i can i can um answer that i think uh the question is if you have assets your house money, stocks, bonds, and you pass away with no will. Is that your question? What happens to it? Well, in terms of, you became, you know, the court looks, you know, at your next of kin and all this stuff. Well, so well, it's... How, how um, if you're not associated with your next of kin, or they're like, you know, some place... No, that's a very good question. Okay, so that's why... I exclude them. Okay, so the question is, well, that's why we encourage everybody to do some estate planning and create a will, um, you know, or a trust, so that you know you your at your belongings and your assets and your money and your house goes to where you want it to go to. That if you don't, if you neglect to do that and you pass away, it's going to go through the Colorado State Intestacy Statutes, where it's going to they're going to beat the bushes and find your next of kin, and if your second cousin four times removed is the only one they can find and the only one living, they're going to get your, you know, I don't think it goes that far, but there's intestacy statutes, I can't say, intestacy statutes, where it goes to your next of kin, they keep looking, they keep looking, and then it, it is sheets, that's a technical term, it is sheets, it goes to the state if they can't, that'll only go to so far. So we really, really, one of the purposes of today is to get everybody to think about getting your state plan in place, including a, a medical power of attorney, you know, financial power of attorney, uh, your will, a trust, and uh, make an appointment if there's still slots available for that, because we can get your specific questions answered for that, for those. Just to be clear, the guardianship and the conservatorship will have no say. Like, so it's not like the court has heard all this information in the context of a conservatorship or a guardianship, and they may take that into consideration if you're, if there's a, a dispute over who gets what through once you're deceased. They, the guardianship and the conservatorship will have no say, and they won't be on the list, so to speak. So it will, um, as Sue said, there's laws that say, here's how it's gonna be divvied up, and here's who gets first dibs if we can find them, and, and it just keeps going down the tree. Um, if you have made absolutely no sort of arrangements for that. But as far as appointment of guardianship or conservatorship, the petitioner will petition to be guardian, the petitioner will petition to be conservator. If the court requires notice be sent to the four corners of the world to notify all next of kin, 
is there, is there any step you can take other than naming who you want to be your guardian and conservator in your will? Is there any step you can take to say, when you notify those people, make sure this person's not considered as a candidate for guardian or conservator? Does the court take into consideration who's the best candidate? Yeah, is it yeah. Absolutely. And I will say the, the respondent will be asked. So again, we very much include whoever we're asked seeking guardianship and they can say, no, I hate that person. Like, no way. Name anybody but that person. And the court will listen to that for sure. And I will say the guardianships that the Department of Human Services is involved in, we look at the, the available family members and we might go to court and very much say this person is not an appropriate person because maybe they have some fraud in their background. Or maybe the respondents told us this person you know, mistreated me or I don't like them or whatever. For whatever reason, you certainly should participate in that and give the court that information. Make yourself heard on that point. Talk to your lawyer about it. Talk to the visitor about it. Talk to whoever you can talk to about why maybe somebody is not appropriate. Because even if, you know, as I said, this, both of these terminate upon death, but there's still a record. And you can, if you get into these disputes with your family, you can pull that record and potentially use it in another type of court proceeding. So I think it's important that you, and judges are very good, especially in this district, about making it easy. They, they will just ask you, why don't you tell me a little bit about what you want? Why don't you tell me? It's very much designed to encourage whoever's participating to tell the court, everything they can about the situation. And I, I would just encourage you, some people I know are fearful, they get into these courtrooms and they don't know what to say. You don't know what to say. And it's a very scary, sometimes intimidating situation to be in a courtroom that you've never been in before. But just always know the whole point is about the people. We wanna serve the people that are there. So do not be afraid to tell the court anything you think might be helpful. Time for one more question. And we do have about 90 seconds. The bank has an, the bank has an instrument called POA. Mm -hmm. I signed up for that. Okay. I think it, it's pretty straightforward. You sure you mean POD? Do you mean power? Ah, death, yes. Payable, yeah. okay. Yeah, I, that actually, I was gonna go on, off on that tangent. <laughs> I was gonna go off on that tangent a little bit. All right, the, again, probably beyond the scope of this, but um, the woman, in, person in the back of the room asked about wills and estate plannings. There's other estate planning um, mechanisms you can use now while you still have full capacity um, to have power over your, you know, your own assets. You can do payable upon death, transferable upon death, beneficiary deeds um, to your property. So if you have a home, you can establish a beneficiary deed and, and get a beneficiary to your home so it goes outside probate. You can do the same with your bank accounts, transferable upon death, payable on death. What I'm, what I'm getting at is there's all kinds of estate planning instruments you can use in conjunction with a will. So I don't want to go beyond the scope of this, but um, again, I encourage everybody, if you haven't, to make an appointment with an estate planning attorney to ask those questions. But I'm, I'm happy to answer your, your question afterwards if you want to come talk to me, and I'll go into a little more detail about T, uh, TODs and PODs. Thank you, Sue, and thank you, Kate.